90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing all right. Got a, well, we didn't actually even get a snow day. We got a online day (laughs) this week. That's what happened as well here. Uh, Mm -hmm. Students got to stay home, but still had to work because snow days are gone. Infuriating. (laughs) Like I was, well, hopefully no one. I said, no, I said, have fun kids. I'll make this up in class. It's fine. Yep. Like, not okay. Right? Poor kids. And then, yeah. Uh, It was a trip. Um, How much snow did you get? One to two inches. Yeah, we didn't get that much either. Which was very sad. And it's like, I know, I read all the forecasts and it said there will be bands of heavy snow, but everyone always thinks that's going to be where you're at, you know? So, yeah, I saw a map of, I think it was up in Illinois, where the bands were circular and there was a hole in the center, like where you would expect Norman to be. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and they were calling it the snow nut. Oh, <laughs> oh that's amazing. I'm absolutely going to Google snow nut right now. <laughs> I don't know if you want to do that. <laughs> okay, probably not. Um, yeah, so it was, uh, 50 or 46 degrees today, right after the day after the snow. And my kids inexplicably got out of school today for a snow day. Yep. So. It's very confusing. It was a very confusing weather event. Um, so that's been the excitement for this week. I mean, I guess for both of us now. Usually you used to get the snow first or the weather first and then I had to wait for it, but. Now it's the opposite. <laughs> it is, yep. Uh, but no, we didn't. Roads were a little slushy here. Uh, went out to the to the farm and checked on, you know, heaters and things a little bit ago, and everything's just fine. Everything's fine, yeah. So my parents live, you know, right across the border from you, about forty five minutes away, um, and they got nothing, not even rain. Yep. It's amazing, and just uh, you know, thirty miles east of here got like four to six inches yeah (sighs) maybe i'll win the snow lottery next time um i will say that you know we've done that show about little weather wisdoms and weather sayings and we could certainly do another one based on farmer's almanac knowledge again but one of the things that's happened this year is we have these trees i call them osage oranges they're, I think, officially called bodark trees. Um, some people call them horse apple trees. They're these really hardwood trees that's like super, super hardwood. It's bright yellow when you cut it. It's really strange. Um, and people made fence posts out of them because it doesn't rot. Like some people call them ironwood trees. And they get these big, what I call Osage oranges or horse apples, these weird green fruits on them. And we had... I'm not even kidding, four times as many this year as we've ever had in the 14 years we've lived here. And so I started looking stuff up. I was like, what does this mean? Surely this means we're going to have a bad winter. And sure enough, it's one of those almanac things. And I've been asking other people, and they have different portents of a bad winter. So 
Yeah. I think it's coming. Yeah, I'm afraid you're right. <laughs> the last, like, the thing that sealed the nail in the coffin today, I went and got my hair cut. And um, my stylist, she said, my longest running client is a meteorologist. I'm like, oh, God, who? You know, blah, blah, blah. He's this retired guy that I used to work with. And she said that he was telling her that winter is going to hit hard at the end of February this year. So there it is. There it is. <laughs> so. Right. We may have more snow days to talk about in the future. <laughs> it's true. Mm -hmm. uh, so even though we didn't get a snow day off from work, we have been working on making, we've talked about real briefly, our geologist squeeze box mm -hmm. on here. Uh, well, we have version two of it now. Ooh. Okay. Is this it's, the one I saw when I came up? Yeah. So, you know, better, faster, stronger, all that stuff. Uh, we found out that students really like to just wail on it until it blows apart. <laughs> I mean, yep. <laughs> So it's now much stronger to help prevent that. Excellent. Uh, but it can also let you do cool things like take the side off and actually like cut into the cross section or make a peel of the cross section with tape. Oh, that's cool. So the students can actually like pull a cross section and <gasps> tape it to their lab paper. Oh, that's a great addition for sure and we've been working on some different like there's some little shaped plates that you can put in and all this fun stuff uh, and it's kind of had me thinking a lot about structures lately because we've been writing a lot of the lab activities to go with this mm-hmm yeah Makes and uh, one of the structures that you can create in these sort of is a basin and range topography or Horst and Graben structure and I thought that'd be kind of fun to talk about because we've talked about faulting before. We've talked a little bit about this, but we haven't ever really talked about what does basin and range mean. Awesome. So I don't know if you've read John McPhee's books. Have you? Read I've them? read some of John McPhee's books. Okay, so he has one that's called Basin and Range. So if you're a geology enthusiast and you like to read John McPhee, M-C-P-H-E-E, you know, is the guy for you. I do know you've read it. We've talked about him a lot. Um, so he is a journalist, but he has done a lot of outside writing. How old is he, John? He's like 90-something, right? Yeah, he, he's up there now. Yeah. Um, and he wrote a book called Basin and Range. It's not my favorite one of his, but it is a very, it's a short read, and it's very, very interesting for the geology enthusiast level. And I mean, it's super interesting for geologists as well, but it's a very accessible book that talks about this because this is such an iconic landscape. I talk a lot about the basin and range, partly because I've done work there, but it's a very iconic landscape formed by extensional tectonics. And I feel like extensional tectonics don't get a lot of attention like compressional tectonics do. <laughs> It's true. Uh, and they can still be exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And produce dramatic landscapes. Right. And so I, I dug a little bit in on this uh, just because, like, I've always, well, not always, 
At some point, I learned the words in a geology class, <laughs> Horst and Graben, <laughs> and I've just said them, and I thought, okay, horse, that sounds kind of like horse, and that's the thing that goes up. Sure. Oh, interesting. Okay. And Graben, that doesn't really sound like anything, but as long as I know what a horse is, I know Graben's the <laughs> other one, and that goes down. <laughs> uh, but I dug in a little bit to this. And we'll, we'll describe the structure a little bit later. It's uh, one of those great instances of where talking about a three-dimensional structure is hard, and it's even harder on radio. <laughs> so true. So true. <laughs> but uh, so the, the Horst comes from German, obviously, and it's mass or heap. Oh, heap. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. It was also the name of my German physics two instructor. <laughs> nice. And yeah. it was... F- first used in a geological way in 1883. Wow. I would have thought that was much longer ago. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is That feels like not very long ago. Hmm. Okay. It, was it in the United States or somewhere else? Uh, let's see here. I can... Because... I found the first use. I said basin uh, and range was like iconic, but that doesn't mean these structures don't exist elsewhere because they do. So I don't know if it was describing this area or not, but it was an Austrian that used the word first. Oh, okay. I could see that. And then Graben, do you have any guesses on it? It was actually harder to find information on. Really? I would have also thought it was German. It is. Mm-hmm. I mean, I want to say like grabbing. Hmm. Robin. No, I took German, but it's been quite some time. <laughs> well, it's like if I make somebody mad enough one day, they'll find me laying in a Graben. <gasps> a grave. That makes total sense. Oh, no. Oh, no? 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 <laughs> oh. A little, little more Arkansas, a little uh, ditch. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> <laughs> okay, ditch. I, I took it I took that to the extreme. <laughs> yeah, no, ditch or trench. Okay. That makes total sense. Especially if you are going to Google horse and Robin and see the geometry of these features. It's true, and what really impresses me is all of this, you know, we're talking eighteen hundreds here. Mm-hmm. So all of this was done probably without any aerial view. I talk about this in native science all the time. It's so impressive what observation does, right? So how would you have figured out, if you look up basin and range, you're like, oh yeah, that makes total sense. If you look at a satellite photo of the basin and range area, you're like, oh, there's an up, there's a down, there's a horse, there's a grubbin. You can almost see it, right? And how like native tribes would observe hurricanes and they knew which direction, like they could have drawn the structure of a hurricane. Their hurricane God mimics the wind directions, which are very confusing in a hurricane, right? They're different at the top and the bottom and all this. And it's all from observation. Amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, we are not talking about first human flight until, uh, what, 1903, right around there. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there were some kite things happening before that, but yeah, we're not, 
we're not dealing with satellite photos, probably not even aerial photos of this. We're probably dealing with crudely constructed topo maps. I mean... And walking around. Yes, exactly. We're dealing with field geology. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. I don't know when the allodade came around when you would make how they used to make topo maps, which I would say is probably pretty impressively exact, but you're exactly right. So it, it it's just observation. It's walking around, figuring out that there are these two bounding faults that are normal faults, okay? And the structure on the very large scale looks like a ditch, right? Yep. That's a lot to figure out just with your eyeballs, but that's how you had to do it. And back then, you know, they used horses, so it's not like you were walking the whole time, but still. <laughs> these are, right. I mean, if we're talking about the basin and range in the western part of the United States, these horse and grobbins, okay, so imagine, I don't know, I always think of, it looks like a keystone, right? So the grobbin looks like a keystone that's, like, fallen down. <laughs> that's how I imagine Yeah. That. But it's upside down. <laughs> yeah. Um. So this ditch, bounded by these normal faults, because we're talking extension, right? They run for hundreds of kilometers. These are huge structures. Yes, and really, to me, they look like uh, either gear teeth or teeth on a timing belt, because okay. that's how I think. Yep, yep, I could absolutely see that, yes. Uh, but yeah, it would be a very big stretch if you didn't know what was going on to look at this very large scale feature and go, you know, I bet the crust was extending here and those <laughs> yeah. blocks fell down. Uh -huh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but that's exactly what was determined. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, this is interesting that you say that in your new squeeze box, you're going to have different shapes, you know, of yeah, the things so squeezing. Like all these different convex, concave, angled, yeah. different angles, plates that you can put in to push the sand at different angles. Okay. That is super cool and probably much more geologically accurate, right, than just a single plate that doesn't bend. It's really hard for students to realize that faults are planes that don't have to be straight. I mean, we always draw them straight. We always draw them straight. It's the easiest way to do it, right? And yeah, so... Drawing in 3D is hard. So hard. And thinking in 3D is hard. No question there. This would be... This is super neat to, to think about these large-scale structures. So if you... You should totally Google Horst and Graben if we're not doing a great job, which we probably aren't uh, describing this three-dimensionally. But also Google Basin Range, right? And you see this huge topography, and it looks like stretch marks, really, from some false color pictures of it. And that's kind of exactly what it is. Like, it forms from extension, and in this case, in the western U.S., there's a bunch of different reasons for this extension. Um... But as that part is going up, it also compresses stuff on the sides, right? And that's where you get, like, it's bounded by some weird shapes, which happen to be mountain ranges. 
And you get a right. lot of weird, like, structural stuff that goes along with that basin and range extension, which is one of the things that draws me to that area to study because it's very, it's very weird plumbing with all those fault systems because you get all these normal faults and this stuff like horse and grobbins, but somewhere that has to, you know, be squished up and it makes them very strange. You can turn these horse and grobbins, you can reactivate them and turn them inside out, essentially. You can squeeze them and then it's very confusing. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> which is and all done so, by observations a long time ago, which is impressive. What's really interesting to me is normally when I'm looking at faults, I think, okay, normal fault, sure, we're probably associated with extension here. Mm-hmm. Fine. I don't necessarily think of normal faults in pairs, which is what we're getting here. Right. At opposing angles. Yes. And... I mean, the motion's not that hard to visualize, but it's something that you wouldn't have just come up with. Correct. As your first guess. Now, the other thing, to throw some more geological words out here, is you're looking at the... When you're looking, standing in a graben, looking at a horse, you're looking at the foot wall of the normal fault that came up in front of you. Mm-hmm. Just a little weird. So imagine you've got your fault and you have a tunnel through where the fault is going to be. The part that you're standing on is the foot wall. The part that you hang your light on is the hanging wall. Yep. And that hanging wall goes down in the graben. The foot wall comes up in the horse. And then the surface expression of that, I'm not going to say it's incredibly confusing, but it's certainly not straightforward. <laughs> Right. When you first look at it. Yeah, yeah, it really isn't. That is. How did how true. did extension? I am standing on something that was being stretched. How did that cause a piece of rock to pop up? <laughs> and I'm looking at that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is where we. You usually in the basin range. There's a bunch of these in laterally, right? Horse grabbing, horse grabbing, horse grabbing. And to me, you almost you almost have to take it as that whole huge system and then think about, yeah, what these little, I mean, they do look like keystones, right? One's upside down, one's right side up. What they do when you pull them apart. Oh, it's so, yeah, it's a very complicated thing to draw for sure. I very much struggle with this and I draw it every year on the board and I haven't gotten any better with it (laughs) (laughs) because what gets, really weird. I don't know if you were planning on discussing this, but some of those horse blocks can start to rotate and then it's really strange. Oh, it's like I set it up for you. <laughs> so then you get into what makes every rock mechanicist just smile. <laughs> Tilted block faulting. <laughs> Which because we have to name it something related to the things we already know, yeah. We call them half grobbin. <laughs> yes. Right. So this is where you get more movement on one side than the other. And so if you're moving this structure, this block down more on one side, it's going to have to tilt. There's nothing else it can do to accommodate that geometry. Oh, and then it gets really complicated. <laughs> yeah. So then you get this series of we would use a a military term, almost like we were meteorologists, Hmm. of 
in echelon faults <laughs> mm-hmm. that you would get and these rotations and we would call them detachment faults oh are you gonna use the word decuma <laughs> wait no <laughs> decolment <laughs> refuse <laughs> yes yeah, so decolment you get a detachment from the underlying material mm-hmm because these little things just start to rotate on their own, and there's still a whole bunch of lithosphere down underneath this. And this is how you make the ranges, because a lot of these ranges out there are pretty pointy, right? This is how you make these pointy ranges in between these basins in the basement range. Right. Not to be confused with valley and ridge. That's a different thing. And... I, I did find a very interesting description of basin and range topography mm-hmm. from Clarence Dutton. Oh, okay. <laughs> he said, it appears as an army of caterpillars crawling northward. <laughs> it does appear that way. I can totally it see does, that. It does, sure. Sure mm-hmm. does. They're very bumpy. And if you're looking at the basin and range province here in the U.S., do you have a guess at what we think? Uh, th- there's huge arguments over how much extension has occurred. But do you have a guess at what, if you take the median out of the literature, that estimate The is? median, not the maximum? Oh, not the maximum, for sure. Just the median. Okay, the median of basin and range extension in the West. Clearly, I'm restating the problem so I can think about and, it. <laughs> you know, let's, let's talk about it like real people, like a strain. So, you know, what percent extension? Oh, percent extension. Hmm. Okay, I was going to give you kilometers. Um, now we got to make things non-dimensional. Come on. I bet, I bet it's big. 15%. <laughs> 15%. Nope. What is it? The median estimate is almost 100%. What? No, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. The... What? Wow. I'm talking about massive movements along That's these faults. Many more than the kilometers I was going to say. <laughs> huh. Huh. So if you have more than a hundred percent extension, what's coming up to take the place of the stuff you're displacing? Well, I mean, you you could have more than a hundred percent extension and still because these faults are at an angle. Oh not yeah, just because you have a, you're a gash rotating. in the earth. Yeah, yeah, you're rotating. Okay. That's unreal. I do remember reading something about that talked about like the rotation on some of these blocks and how they're like almost upside down, which what? (laughs) Yeah. And then you start getting into, (laughs) I'm going to call it speculative tectonics. (laughs) That's what, that's what they called plate tectonics back in the day too. Because you start getting into to words that people throw around and nobody really agrees on, like slab pull, slab rollback. <sighs> yes, rollback. That's my favorite one to talk about. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. It's, but um, yeah. That, that's getting pretty far afield from basic basin and range structures. <laughs> but it also demonstrates that this thing that looks easy, like, oh, stretch marks, that makes sense, right? <laughs> like, you're, we don't know what's making the stretch marks in all the places is the deal, right? So there's a lot of plutons out west, which is why we have the Sierra Nevadas, is what the Sierra Nevadas are. Um, 
And that causes extension. When you bring all this magma up, that crust that's on top of it will start to break apart. It will start to extend. I mean, it's just like, you know, pushing. They do these experiments, right, where you have like a box filled with sand and like you pump up a balloon underneath it. Right. And so you're going to see cracks in the sand, right? That's kind of what has happened in a lot of areas in the basin and range for the extension. But then John also said those weird words, slab pull, because you maybe have some subduction driven stuff that's going along with it on the sides. And yeah, there's a lot of fight. And this, we will say, is not very old, right? So this is basin and range extension is Cenozoic in age. So it's in the last 50, 40 million years that this stuff has taken place. Yeah, it's recent. Yeah, and it's actually still going. So, mm hmm now, the, the these aren't just academically interesting structures either. Uh, the horse and graben topography is actually very important on the order of lots of barrels, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so all of these faults are conduits for fluid flow, but they also are traps for fluid flow. And so these blocks trap lots of oil and you'll see that all over the west it's not just oil it's oil gas all kinds of great stuff that you want to pull out of the ground because as soon as these grobbins or horse break off from each other they're just their own tidy little container and you can just stick a straw in them right i mean that is how drilling works yeah mm-hmm, exactly uh, but no so yeah the, the horse are i mean they're a conventional trap. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's, yes. There's nothing fancy about that. Uh, if you go look at Libya, they have tens of billions of barrels trapped by horses in Libya alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. And again, you always think, oh, well, I have to have a big anticline that got there by pushing on either side and... That's how I trap it. But it's really the, the fault situation, so the plumbing that I mentioned earlier, that makes this a very interesting place. And it's not only, I mean, these horse and grobbins trap oil and gas in there pretty well, but all these faults, like I said, are conduits for fluids. And so if you get magma underneath there that's pluton, it can heat up the groundwater, and it can... Um, cause migration of fluids along these faults. And eventually, when all that stuff cools down, you can deposit lots of super juicy ore minerals. And there's an awful lot of ore mineralization. And so by ore, I mean like economic metals um, right. generated out in this area. And the generation of them is Magmatic, it's a different thing, but the plumbing in place by the Horst and Grobbins also, you know, helps in terms of where these fluids flowed. One of my favorite things about faults, and I say this fully, you know, as being a fault <laughs> researcher, <laughs> is that when we want them to be conduits for fluid, it's a convenient answer. When we want them to be a Trap for fluid yep. is also a convenient answer. <laughs> it's so true. But it's, they're both true. Yeah, I mean, we've even gone as far as having things like the fault valve hypothesis, where the fault sometimes is and sometimes isn't. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And there's pretty good evidence for that. Exactly. Yeah. They're definitely scapegoats for lots of things. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very interesting. So, yeah, I mean, uh, Basin Range, Horsten Graben, uh, fun words, lots of faults, which is something I like, uh, mm-hmm. economically value, beautiful, and just academically interesting. Yeah. So I thought it'd be a great little topic to talk about and something that... Uh, Hopefully, with these new shaped plates that we've got and squeeze boxes, uh, people can make their own. I can't wait. That sounds super fun. And, yeah, that seems like also something I'll spend a lot of time doing instead of, you know, making lectures and other things I'm supposed to be doing. (laughs) We have played a lot with these. (laughs) Um, But that's just... Yep. Just how it goes, and exactly. we still haven't figured out, uh, you know, we've been trying to work with some different activities on, like, the coring and the peels. Eventually, we're going to have to move on to other products. <laughs> uh, but we have spent quite a bit of time on these, and they actually have been surprisingly challenging to make in a nice, reliable way. Mm-hmm. Because even though it's just sand in a small box on a desk, the forces can still get pretty significant. Right, Yeah. No, that's... Though we did uh, figure out a way to have two pushing plates <gasps> as well. So you can modify your squeeze box. You can buy an extra pushing plate, and you can like deform different sides either in different directions or at different rates by cranking the handles differently. Man, that's a, that's a great thing to break down the misconception that everything is a straight line. Oh, For yeah. Great ideas. Love it. But, uh, yeah, so now I think it's time to switch to a uh, a totally different topic. <laughs> totally different topic. <laughs> which means Fun Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> oh, man. Daryl does it again. Is ever, ever since the Ministry of Silly Walks paper, by the way, I've watched that skit like every few days <laughs> since then, just because I forgot how good it was. <laughs> oh, I love it. That's fantastic. Uh, John Cleese, fantastic. Yep. And I'm sure we could find some sort of kissing Monty Python sketch, right? Which is what I'm sure. this one is about. Um, again, from our, from our absentee co-host, co-host Daryl, Shaping the Oral Microbiota Through Intimate Kissing by Court et al. And there's a lot of et al's on this one. Everybody wanted to be in on this kissing paper. Yeah, they did. And also, it's so funny because a lot of these, um, you know, experimental papers that we read, they'll be like, man, we got 15 undergrads. That's as much as we could do. They have like 80 people on this yeah. paper. Like, everyone is fine with this. <laughs> so the the interesting thing here was how much is your and your kissing partner's oral microbiota swapped? <laughs> From the act of intimate kissing. I was actually very surprised by how, by the outcomes of this paper. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I also had to look up some of these things like the Morissette Horn Dissimilarity Index. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot in there, but I I liked in the experimental design. It's like, okay, well, we're going to measure how similar the saliva of these couples are. 
at different time periods since they've kissed. Okay, sure. My first thought was like, well, but they're going to eat the same things. They're going to be in the same house. Well, they thought of that. Mm-hmm. And they said, we need some kind of way to isolate, you know, some kind of marker. Mm-hmm. Which I was thinking, you remember those tablets that the dentist would give you when you were kids <laughs> that you would chew? Those little pink things, yeah. <laughs> and they'd make your teeth nasty colors where the where the plaque was. Uh-huh. And it took like two hours to get it all brushed off. Uh-huh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The, like the shaming tablets so you could see how yeah. poorly you did when you were told to brush your teeth. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, so those things. Um, obviously, they can't do that. But I was like, well, what are they going to use for a marker? And they did the brilliant thing of saying, here, here's a probiotic yogurt drink. Yep. Or yogurt. It's got bacteria. Yogurt, as you say, right? Yogurt, <laughs> yes. Because clearly this is um, not an American journal. Um, yeah. And so then they could test whether the specific um, little microbes were transferred um, there are some really... And lactobacillus makes another appearance in Fun Paper Fridays. Oh, yeah. All the time, right? This guy is a superstar. <laughs> One of the greatest parts of this paper is that of these couples, they said, okay, like, how much do you normally kiss, right? There had to be a self-reported kissing, um, intimate kissing Number in here, this is hilarious, 74% of the men reported higher intimate kiss frequencies than the women of the same couple. Not surprised. (laughs) Resulting in a male average of 10 and a female average of 5 intimate kisses per day. So obviously this leads me to immediately say, man, that's really funny. You always hear that men over-report things like this, to which the next sentence says, yes, men frequently over-report things like this. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. <laughs> and then link to a bunch of studies where men, yeah, think they're way better than they normally are. <laughs> so that was really great. But the whole point was that you have to have a ridiculously high average of kissing before your bacteria looks exactly like the person that you're kissing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like... <laughs> Frequent and often. Yes, nine. Nine intimate kisses a day is the bottom threshold of getting your bacteria to look alike. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Yeah, <laughs> and the time passed makes a difference, obviously. Mm-hmm. And it's in a very sharp log decay fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the, the dissimilarity index gets over 50% in just hours. Yeah. Yeah, so like an hour and a half or less. Um, And then when they did this, they put the probiotics or the marker bacteria in the yogurt. It like did nothing, which was very interesting, is that after some kissing, it doesn't really transfer like a bunch of the same. And it does transfer bacteria, which was crazy. (laughs) There's a lot of bacteria transferred, but only some of it sticks around in your mouth. Yeah, it was what, like 80 billion bacteria or something? Yeah, it was like 80 billion bacteria get transferred, but it doesn't hang out very long. So that's the frequency part. So it takes at least nine kisses a day (laughs) and not very long in between those kisses to get bacteria to colonize that look like the 
probiota available in your significant other's mouth. Right. And they, they did test both saliva and they did tongue swabs to get down in the grooves where the bacteria like to set up shop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So very interesting. Um, <laughs> hilarious picture, obviously, um, <laughs> of the experimental setup. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty good. Um, yeah. So that's a very interesting paper. I could see where you would want to know this. Obviously talking about probiota or not probiota your microbiome is a big thing now and it would stand to reason that people that um swap microbiomes would have very similar ones but yeah it's a little bit more complicated than that yeah and i also this is just a random side note but did you notice in methods where they collected their people for this study yes (laughs) what it's some like art thing (laughs) Like, were they all, like, drinking wine and cheese? And they were like, hey, come do this. No, so it says, the microbiota were collected among human couples visiting the Artis Royal Zoo in Amsterdam. Yes. Yeah. There we go. The zoo. Sorry. I imagined an art party when I first read that. What? (laughs) What? What? Was it a zoo full of people? I don't know, but they <laughs> they went to the zoo in uh, July of 2012, and two yep. years later, uh, out this, came this, this paper. paper. Came out. Oh, <laughs> uh, see, you never know what happens when you're out and about. It's true. <laughs> well, if uh, you have done a microbiome classification of your saliva, you can uh, keep that to yourself, or you can sit it in if you like. <laughs> Or tell us what your favorite probiotic yogurt drink is. <laughs> Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo, at geo underscore Lehman, and at Shannon Doolin. As always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. If you would like to support us and keep us going, patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.